0: So, Pastor Ryan's been teaching through um, or taught through the book of Ruth, and as I, as I was saying, I, I love it how worship oftentimes just seamlessly goes together with the message and just thinking about those last words that we sang, that he's the way maker, the miracle worker. Um, and, and that little bit that she's saying, you know, when, when the darkness is holding on to me. When it seems like, you know, whether it's the temptations of life, the sorrows and grief of life, frustrations, anger, all those things that would distract us, they seem to be holding on to us, yet God is holding on to us through it all. And that's why as I was praying through, Lord, what would you have us study this morning together and thinking through the book of Ruth? and the different things that were taking place there, you know, as Ruth and her family left Moab or left Bethlehem for, you know, Israel and went into Moab, what was going on? What was happening in their lives? And in, in that study of Ruth, we learned a few things um, as they're struggling there, God is still working in Israel. They left Israel, they left Bethlehem to find provision, but in fact what they were doing was leaving the provision of God. And they go there, and as we learned that um, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and her two sons, both die and they are there now alone as we study through psalm 77 this morning what i want to be able to do is take a look at some of the parallels that we might gather from naomi's life because while she's there in in moab they were there for 10 years And the end of that being alone, and you've got to be wondering, what is she thinking? What is she thinking as she is in this place that God's people ought not to be? She's been led there by her husband, she goes there, but then it's just tragedy. And then as we look at Psalm 77... And this is written by Asaph. What was he experiencing in his life? And I I believe what they were experiencing is really this unresolved or overwhelming sadness. Griefy, perhaps. A, A sorrow so deep that it drives them to seek an answer to suffering. So, if you were, t- we'll take just a minute, do a little bit of history because I kind of geek out on history a little bit, and I, talk, you know, I was talking about some of the staff this week with it. Um, it's sometime around thirteen oh two BC that um, they leave Bethlehem and they go to Moab. And Bethlehem, in fact, all of Israel is experiencing the famine, and. They're experiencing this famine famine because of the discipline of the Lord as a result of their disobedience and rejection of Him as their God and leader. And that's outlined, this, this discipline is outlined in Deuteronomy 28. So, because of Israel's disobedience, the Lord allowed Eglon, the Moabite king, to subdue Israel and begin to exact tribute or taxes from them. In the middle of this, around 1294 B.C., that is when Elimelech moves his family into Moab. So, think with me just for a moment. Not only are they going to Moab, it's not just like, okay, we don't see food here in Bethlehem, but they're intentionally moving to the nation that has subdued them and is bleeding them dry during the famine. A godless king, and that's where they're gonna move to. And they live there and suffer, as I said, uh, for about 10 years until about 1284. But what happens in 1284 that provokes Naomi to return to Bethlehem? And for that answer, you'd need to go to Judges chapter 3. You could turn there if you like, it'll be up on the screen. This is what we read. Now, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees, that's Jericho. The sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. But when the sons of Israel, and this is the key point, but when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord... The Lord raised up a deliverer from them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. I know that's a weird detail, right? The left-handed man. It's like, what is up with that? So, I'll give you the abbreviated or the Reader's Digest version of that. So, the majority of the nation Israel, now God has always preserved for Himself a righteous remnant throughout history and even to this day. But the majority of Israel has abandoned the Lord, chasing her after false gods, again, corresponding to Deuteronomy 28, so the Lord disciplines them. And he does this using this wicked king, Eglon, the king of Moab. He also, his discipline takes form of withholding the rains that would nourish the ground, that would feed the ground and, and give them crops. So after Israel cries out in repentance, God raises up Ehud, the left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. There's all kinds of just fun information in that. Um, You know, the Benjamites, strangely enough, they were noted for a lot of them being left-handed, left-handed men, especially the warriors. But men in that day were trained right-handed. So it was interesting in one of the passages that the Benjamites could could fight both left and right-handed, ambidextrously. So they had this unique thing, and that plays into the story. And Ehud is sent to Moab to deliver this tribute, this large amount of taxes to the king. And he fashions a sword, a double-edged sword, straps it to his right thigh under his cloak, which is not the normal place a warrior would hide that because again most one everyone was right-handed so it would be on the left side he goes in and he assassinates he kills Ehud and that's a whole nother story with a lot of grotesque details he kills Eglon and then he races home rallies the people of Israel by the power of the Lord and they defeat the Moabites And that results in about 80 years of peace. This is the time of the judges. So, it is like peaks and valleys during the times of the judges. They pursue the Lord and then they decline, decline, decline until they reach the bottom, the bottom of the barrel. And then God raises up a deliverer. And they do this over and over again. So, what happens in 1284 that provokes Naomi to return to Bethlehem? Well, it's the famine. The famine in the land ends. Why? Because the people of Israel cried out to God. We can only imagine that Naomi herself is doing the same thing. It just so happens, as we've been learning, that she is doing the same thing in her own heart and soul, And she hears, as the scriptures say, as we saw there in Ruth, that she hears that the Lord has visited Israel by feeding his people. And she's like, I have nothing left. I've cried out to God, and now I must go. And this is where I want to start in Psalm 77 this morning. Psalm 77, verses 1 through 4, and we're just going to work through this this morning. And it says, My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted comforted now think with me when we find ourselves in those circumstances of life when we feel like life has been swallowed up by grief or sorrow whether that's of our own choosing our own decisions decisions of others affecting our lives temptation or just the natural course of of human life how do we respond now notice I did not say if I mean to put us all on the same level playing field it's not a matter of if we will experience difficulties in this life it is only a matter of when I hope I'm not being a bummer to you this morning From Genesis chapter 3 through the book of Revelation, sorrow and grief are experienced by all of God's people. No matter the depth of their love, our love for Him and service towards Him, we are going to experience difficulties. So when we experience grief and our sorrow that seems to consume us, How do we find peace? How do we find comfort to be able to move forward? Asaph reveals what himself and perhaps Naomi, the nation Israel, and what you and I will likely experience. I mean, in fact, Psalm 77 is almost like this mental health flowchart of what it might be like or what it is like, describing the phases of grief, how we might move through them, and what it looks like to find healing. And I know, I've shared this with a few people, I know that this has been a very perhaps challenging season the last, I don't know, four, five, six months or longer, actually the last year. We've had a number of people here in this church body that experienced deep loss, the death of loved ones. Even in my own family. And so I think Psalm 77 is desiring for us to, God is trying to speak to us and say, how do we walk from that, those losses, those experiences, and discover joy in the midst of it? Now, a little historical background uh, based on the historical and literary evidence. It's believed that Asaph, the title of this psalm, is likely a descendant of Asaph, who's described in 2 Chronicles 15 and 16, and he was chosen by King David, and he bears the same name. He writes this psalm, they believe, sometime during the time of Israel's exile, captivity in Babylon, around, I think, 586 or so. As captives in Babylon, Asaph and the the Jewish people, they have no temple to worship in, to offer sacrifices, to gather, and grief overwhelms him because of the loss of relationship, purpose, and identity with God. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt like, where in the world is God in this circumstance? Why Why is God allowing this persistent temptation in my life? Why is this grief so great? And this is what he's describing, his experience. And Asaph writes not only from his own grief, but he really, in essence, writes this as the voice of Israel. So if you can think of it not just as the individual Asaph, but the nation Israel crying out to God. In the voice of Israel, he writes this, crying out to God. Verse 1, to cry aloud. And I, when, you, when we read this in English, it just lacks some, some punch because this means to shout, to wail, to grieve deeply toward heaven with sorrow and frustration. I, I, this is no like, hey, let me go have a quiet time with the Lord. No, this is loud. It says to cry aloud. That's how deep the grief is. He can't contain it. He can't hold it back. It's just pouring forth from him with shouts and screams and sobbings. It says there, in the day of trouble, What was he referring to? Well, he's looking back through Israel's history. As he remembers how his people were slaughtered and dragged from their homes, from Jerusalem, and into captivity as slaves. So he shouts towards heaven, he cries out, with an overwhelmed spirit, declaring his grief. But he says, I know that God hears me. I know that God hears me. And this is this first stage of just, Lord, this is terrible. This is more than I think I can bear. Surely you hear me. Surely you see me. And how does he do this? Verse 2, it says, he does this without growing weary. He is doing this persistently. It, it reminds me of the parable in Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 8, regarding that persistent friend that has a guest that comes and visits him late at night and he has nothing to feed him. So he goes to his neighbor, knocks on the door, hey, help me out, brother. I, I've got a friend here. It's just to be a shameful thing to not give him something to eat. His friend has already locked up the house, turned out the lights, everyone's in bed, does not want to get out of bed, but because his friend is persistently pounding at the door, he gets up and gives him the bread. Now, is this saying that that, uh, God is reluctant to answer our prayers? No. God is not reluctant to answer our prayers. But he has a great joy... a great joy to fulfill and answer us. And he is, he wants us to be fully engaged in pursuit of him. And so, Asaph says, you know, I just, I I do not grow weary doing this, crying out because I know the Lord hears me. The last part of verse 2, he says, my soul refused to be comforted. Really, he's saying nothing nothing in this world outside of hearing from the Lord is going to bring me comfort, is going to bring God's people comfort. That is the reality of the circumstance. There is no distraction that will satisfy him. Now, some of you are aware that I get to, uh, I get to volunteer as a, a chaplain with one of our law enforcement agencies, and I'm, I'm often asked to assist in making death notifications, not one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> but one of the most difficult was kneeling in front of a young wife and mother as she is rocking back and forth, repeating over and over with tears, please don't say it, please don't say it, please don't say it, as I had to tell her that her husband had been killed in an accident. If you want to get a sense of what Asaph is describing, that is it. In a mixture of anger, grief disbelief and even denial all she could do was wail and scream nothing that her family said or did nothing that i said or did could bring her comfort Nothing could distract her from the depth of the sorrow that she was experiencing. And even as I followed up with her days and and a week or so, a month or so later, there was just nothing in life that could satisfy the grief. Have you ever experienced that? Maybe even just a little bit of it in your own life, maybe not in loss, but just in frustration because of life, that nothing will distract you, no movie, no movie. No favorite hobby, no vacation, nothing will distract you from what you are feeling and experiencing. This is what's happening with Asaph. Verse 3, says, when I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint, Selah. You see, in this circumstances, as the grief deepens, as the sorrow increases, and he finds no satisfaction in the things of this world, no distractions from it, not even remembering God that He is present in that circumstance brought him relief. And this can be true for you and I. I mean, knowing the truth sometimes in those circumstances, knowing that God is there, and and sometimes we are careless in our love and, and care and concern for one another. It's like, oh, God is with you. Yes, I know that, but right now I don't feel that. The knowledge of God is not bringing him comfort. And his spirit grows faint and that little word there at the end there it sort it of says, selah, it means to pause, to wait. It's as if the psalmist, Asaph, is saying, hold on just for a moment. This grief is too much for me to bear. I am not able to go on. I, I just need to stop for a minute. Can life just slow down for a second? And that's what he's saying, he's saying wait a second, consider this. And that is the reality that life difficult life circumstances can bring a halt to life. It can cause us to pause and be frozen. it may cause us to question whether the Lord sees and cares about our circumstances. And this is what he describes in verse 4. He says, You have held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. So despite this persistent cry for help, we see his troubled heart become even more overwhelmed Even when his his eyes are open or closed or attempting to close them, he says his mind is just running. He cannot sleep. This is one of the most common things when people are experiencing a crisis or persistent difficulty that they believe God is supposed to handle and take care of is that their minds just can't shut off. My mind, I've experienced it, my mind just won't turn off. Insomnia. He closes his eyes, but there's no sleep. His mind is still running through the horrible images, playing through life's what-ifs. His heart has become so sick, he is reduced just to moaning. He can no longer find words to express the depth of his heart. Much like Job or Naomi, when the answer of the Lord is delayed, the heart can easily become so sick that despite hearing of God's goodness... And and as and in Naomi's case, returning even to Bethlehem, look, she went to Bethlehem. She'd heard that God had visited the people again and was providing, but she goes there and her heart is so sick that she takes on this new name and new identity. Again, no longer am I lovely, but I am bitter. This is what happens when the heart becomes so sick that it can't see the hope in Jesus. Proverbs 13:12, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. It's really the second half of that that is reflected in Lamentations 3.25, the Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. It is good that He waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. Listen, that waiting, that persistent waiting even, is good. In our frustration, in our fear, our anger, the Lord is actually orchestrating. He's still working, as we sang, right? Right? Even when I cannot feel it, He's working. Even when I cannot see it, He is working because He's the way maker, the miracle worker, right? He is orchestrating a plan not just for us, but for all of humanity at the same time. What we think is a cruel delay may be His patient kindness towards someone else in greater need. Meanwhile, His delay in our circumstances, if we're not careful, can lead us astray. However, His delay in our circumstances, as we look to Him, is actually growing that tree of faith that is putting down deep roots that's talked about in Psalm 1 that says its leaf will not wither and it will yield its fruit, that joyful fruit in season. Verse 5, he says, I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. So, in verse 5 and 6, we really see how this sick heart looks back to the good old days. Have you ever done that? When things are a mess and you're like, oh, I, I remember when it was just so good. When life was seat and sweet and God sees, and we see His hand with ease, but sadly, it doesn't find hope and peace in the present. And again, I think we can all relate to this, right? Especially in the days in which we live, and the reason being is because of dissatisfaction in the present, we only see the good in the past. Because the reality is the joys of the past are often kind of viewed through a lens that blurs out all the associated hardships, like, oh, it was just so good back then. We blocked out all the nonsense that we experienced. Uh, The nation Israel did this. They experienced it as they fled Egypt into the wilderness. Exodus 16, 2 through 3. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, would Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. Wow. When we sat by the pots of meat. When we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Really? really? That lens was pretty small. (laughs) Oh, you know, totally forgot about the beatings and the, the murder and just the severe oppression. And this is what we do sometimes, right? Oh, if we just had yesterday. We also see Asaph recalling how God worked years ago, how he used to sing about the Lord in the night, how it was, how it, back then it was joyful to meditate and to ponder, to think about the good things he was doing in that season. And the implied question is this, why are you not doing them now, God? What the heck, where are you you were so good back then. Why are you declining in rescuing me and the ones I love, sparing us from this sorrow? And if we're not careful, we will slide further down the path. Grief will lay hold of our thoughts and our emotions, and it will begin to twist the truth, the truth about God and the past and the present and the future. Read verse 7 through 9 with me. He asks these questions now. He says, will the Lord reject forever? And will He never be favorable again? Has His loving kindness ceased forever? Has His promise ceased? Come to an end forever, has God forgotten to be gracious, or He in His anger withdrawn His compassion?" You see, looking back with discontentment in the present is a sure recipe for doubt. We are likely going to experience this if we have not already. And this kind of thinking often begins with the phrase, if only. If only I had stayed in that job if only I had remained single, or if only I was married, if only I had made a different decision, if only this person or that person had done this or that thing, and the list goes on and on and on. The phrase, if only, distracts us from the true cause of our suffering and keeps us looking to Jesus for answers. The moment that happens, we will likely begin to verbalize what Asaph did and says things. He says, God is done with me. God can't fix this. God does not see or hear me anymore. I've messed up too much. I'm beyond saving. Or or perhaps, he says, we begin to think that God never cared about us in the first place. Or have you ever done that God is punishing me? Or even worse, God is just cruel and heartless. I can only imagine that Naomi felt this way. How could you lead my husband to take us there? Why weren't you there when he died? Why weren't you there when my sons died? The people of Israel certainly felt this way. As you read through the book of Exodus, through the book of Judges, David felt this way. He wrote of this in the Psalms himself, Psalm 13:1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And, And listen, this is good for us. It's not unreasonable for us to cry out to God and express our doubts and our fears. He can certainly take it, can't he? but when we give in to that kind of thinking when that kind of thinking warps our perception of reality what happens well that's what happens verses seven through nine but i want to look at this and contrast and i think it'll be up on your screen contrast it with the truth because this is the truth he asks, will the lord reject forever jesus said in hebrews 13 5 i will never leave you nor forsake you that is the truth never he asks, and will he never be favorable again psalm 30 verses 4 through 5 for his anger is but for a moment his favor is for how long a lifetime weeping may last for the night but a shout of joy comes in the morning Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. Asaph says in verse 8, has his loving kindness ceased forever? Romans 8, 39, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate. Has his promise come to an end forever? The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but patient toward you, patient towards us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. Has God forgotten to be gracious? No, for of his fullness we have all received what? Great and grace upon grace, John 1:16. Or has he in his anger withdrawn his compassion? Lamentations 3.22, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. And then once again, He adds that in there, Selah. He says, I'm asking these dark questions. I feel this in my soul, but hold on, wait a minute, let me think about that. is this really true pause think about that for a moment before you make that next decision he wants the truth to sink in and in verse 10 he acknowledges the danger of not only considering how grief has interrupted his happiness or more accurately how he has allowed grief to become an idol and uh, and rob him of the lord's joy These two things are happening. And he says, wait a second. And then he answers his own question, verse 10. Then I said, it is my grief, pause. It is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. To paraphrase Frederick Nietzsche, uh, a philosopher who lived in the 1800s, early 1900s, he would eventually go insane, but he said, uh, I'll paraphrase, we must not stare into the abyss of grief too long, lest we are consumed by its never-ending sorrows. If we look too long into that deep, deep, deep chasm of grief, and that's where we stay, we will never find the bottom of it. There is a never-ending supply of grief. This is one of the reasons, uh, and we've said it before, I don't think God intended us to have all the access that we do to everything around the world in one moment. If you are to grab your phones at any moment, sitting here in church perhaps, right now you're maybe tempted to scroll through Facebook or look at your newsfeed or you're getting those little notifications and it's just sucking the life out of you at times because you're overwhelmed by what is taking place around the world, we cannot look too long into that abyss. (coughs) Because if we do, we allow grief to consume our hearts and minds. And we will discover our hearts and minds can no longer think or feel what is true about the Lord. we will begin to question the anchor that is in our life. And we will begin to think that the the grace and mercy of the Lord is now exchanged for a God of wrath and punishment. His patience will be seen as abandonment and His love seen as fleeting and fickle. I know. I've done it. In this church... I have felt that way, I have, and as a result, tried to run from the things of God and found no satisfaction in them. So, in verse 10, Asaph acknowledges his foolishness, and in effect he says, my grief, my looking to the abyss. Has deceived me and caused me to believe that the Lord has changed. And that's not true. My heart, your heart, is not sick because the Lord has failed. He cannot fail to keep his promises because that is his character, that is his nature. He is unchanging and he cannot deny himself. He must fulfill his promises. He must be compassionate towards the hurting. In fact, just if you were to like transport yourself for a moment there on top of the mountain with Moses. In Exodus chapter 34 verses 6 and 7, like amid the clashes of lightning and the the peals of thunder, this is how the Lord describes himself to Moses some 3,500 years ago. It says, the Lord passed in front of him, speaking to Moses, and proclaimed what? The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation he cannot deny <coughs> his character we may be looking at our circumstances and we're saying where in the world is god's justice his justice is coming but his comfort is also coming And when our minds and feelings try to lie to us, what should we do? We should run to the presence of the Lord to remember, meditate, absorb the truth of who He is and who we are as His kids. This is exactly what Asaph does. He chooses to cry out to the Lord using the Lord's Word as, his remember, as he remembers the goodness of God. And he says, I shall, I will. Those are the hallmarks of this changed mind that he has. It's as if he stood himself up and shook himself and said, wake up. Wake up, you fool. Brought him back to his senses and say, no, no. And then verse 11 and 12, he says, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will. Remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on all your deeds now as his, his mind is corrected. Reality has returned. Truth has apprehended his soul one more time. And he uses those three different words. Remember, meditate or to muse. Remember to, to recall to your mind to affect our present feelings to meditate, to think upon, to soak it in, and then to muse or, or to ponder, which is to allow our thoughts and feelings to be absorbed into the truth. Some time ago, I started meeting with a young man in the church, and we challenged each other to memorize some Bible passages, one of the first ones... That we memorize is one that's been dear to me as I've struggled throughout the years. Philippians 4 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence or anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Dwell. Hang out there. Don't be in a hurry. And Asaph does this in the remaining verses. Here in Psalm 77, we're going to read them all together. He says, "'Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders.'" You have made known your strength among the peoples, not just Israel, the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. Think about that for a minute. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, and they were in anguish. The deep also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters. And your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. It's it's a complete departure from the earlier focus on himself. Asaph directs our attention to the source of life and truth, and he's abandoned this inward narcissism. I, 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 me, myself, my. That's what he says in all the preceding verses. Now it's you, your God, you're the center of all of this. Gone are all the effects of the world. It's just, God, you and your honor the self-centered statements beginning with I and me and my. The Lord is the sole focus. He is holy. He is great. God works wonders. Your strength is known. Your power revealed. Your love redeemed. And this is what has been happening since you first made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Despite 400 years of oppression in Egypt, your authority and power could not be stopped by Pharaoh. You displayed both your love And your justice, when you parted the Red Sea, not leaving your footprint behind and you judge the Egyptians by swallowing them in the sea. This is what he's declaring. Listen, you've been great, you've been wonderful, and your justice is certain. You see, because despite their constant complaining and rebellion... the people of israel your tenderness and patience were just demonstrated as you led your people for 40 years in the wilderness giving them food from heaven water from the rock leading them by a, a a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and his great greatest kindness grace and mercy were displayed when on a criminal's cross He showed the full extent of his love by taking my place, our place, paying the debt we owed so we could know him personally and be rescued from certain judgment. You see, the resounding echo of Asaph's voice can almost be heard in the words that were recorded by Paul in Ephesians three sixteen through 19. And he's speaking of, of God the Father, reminding all who will listen, let the light of truth flood the abyss of grief. And he says that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his, inner, through his spirit in the inner man. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may able, be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the height and the length and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Ashes for beauty. That's what he wants turning sorrow to joy. That's what he desires. There is no sorrow, no grief, no hurt, no temptation, no rebellion or sin so great that could ever or would ever uh, prevent Jesus from revealing to us joy amidst sorrow. Comfort in seasons of pain a way out of temptation and redemption, even to those who have knowingly rebelled. He says he will keep on speaking. He says that even if we won't hear his voice, even the rocks will cry out. What's well, one of the beauties, beauties, beautiful things that the, the team there is in Israel is seeing literally the rocks crying out from the past saying, I am God. I've always been God. Everything in my word is true. They just keep digging it up over and over and over again. He is persistent in His pursuit of His creation. And all He asks us to do is what? To cry out to Him. To cry out to Him. Return to Him and discover He is the living water, the bread of life, the comforter, the prince of peace, the wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting and unchanging Father. And He is not like the shifting shadows which change from day to day. Cry out to Him. He can take it i know i've shouted at him like lord what in the heck are you doing how is this even possible don't you see he says cry out to me he's not afraid of my anger complaints frustration or fear and we could see this recorded all throughout the scriptures his love, grace, and mercy, they are rock solid when we are not. And His justice is certain. He knows we are frail. He knows that we are just made of dust. And that His patience and gentleness are proclaimed from beginning to end. Amen? I pray that we would find comfort together. Will you stand with me? as the worship team comes forward. I know most, if not all of us, can identify in some way with this. And God brought us here to hear from Him and to leave here changed. As His Word says, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we would be able to understand his good and perfect will. Amen? Amen. And, and this morning we have no excuse that, that we get to be here together in the presence of the Lord. And he is offering us an answer. And we just need to lay hold of it. And it's simple. It's, it's crying out to him. Lord I need you I need help I need wisdom I need relief I need joy I need purpose and maybe you came here this morning and this is ringing in your heart and in your mind maybe it's making your hands sweat just thinking about the implications of it God is saying, Come to me. You got a burden that's too heavy for you to care? Come to me. Maybe a part of that burden is that you've never personally said, Lord, I believe in who you are. The God of all creation, the author of the word, the Savior. Maybe you've never confessed your sin to him and asked for forgiveness and accepted his gift, his payment. And this morning, this could be what reorients you, clears up the clouded thinking. And there are people up to my right and left that would be more than happy to pray with you. To help you to discover joy and peace and comfort and purpose. Or maybe you're a believer here this morning. And you are just wrestling with this world and this life and the circumstances. God says, I have an answer for you. Again, let's, let's cry out together to Him. Amen.